This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, I just want to add to uh, echo Rob and uh, say Happy Mother's Day as well, uh, celebrating all the moms today. About 50% of the time, probably, I haven't done the research, but about 50% of the time on Mother's Day, I speak a message on motherhood, and about 50% of the time on Father's Day, I speak a message on fatherhood, probably, over the last, we've been here 13 years, so that's probably roughly like that. So today, the mystery is that I'm not speaking on motherhood, but I do want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. I think on Father's Day, I think I am speaking on fatherhood, because we're going to be in Colossians, and I think we just are landing on a text that has to do with fatherhood. So anyway, uh, so we are going to look in uh, Colossians 1. And if you, uh, don't, if you have a Bible, open up there. If you don't, if you will grab one under the seat in front of you is a Bible. And you can grab one and turn to page 572. 572 and you can track along with us. Uh, the text is a little bit dense, uh, but so am I. So it's a good match. And, uh, and I'm going to try to unpack it as clearly as possible. So if you could just, if you read along with this, you'll be able to... Well, you'll just be able to get a lot more out of it, I think. It'll make a lot more sense to you. So looking at the mystery, wonder what he's going to talk about. It's a mystery. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, this is God's word to us. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would grant us the gift of clarity today, that we might understand your word. We are dependent upon you, so we ask your Holy Spirit to open our minds, to help us to concentrate and focus, and to help us to understand. And we pray that most of all, you'd show us Christ and his glory, Christ in this this passage, that we might uh, respond to you with uh, hearts full of love and gratitude for all that you are to us, Lord Jesus. So we, we trust you. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage, the wor- one word that is important that occurs a number of times is the word mystery. Mystery. Look at verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Look at chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. God's mystery. It's all over the New Testament, this word, especially in Paul's writings. This word mystery is all over. He uses it a lot in Ephesians, which is a very similar book to Colossians, the word mystery. Now, when we hear the word mystery, what we tend to think about in our culture is a, maybe a novel or a movie that, uh, that uh, is kind of a whodunit. So we're trying to find out who committed the crime, who did the murder, whatever it is. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery. It's a, a thriller, that kind, of a, that kind of a thing. 
For the people in Colossae, it would have meant something very different. The people surrounding the church here in Colossae, when they hear the word mystery, they would have thought of the mystery religions. They were surrounded by uh, mystery religions. Now, mystery religions were these sort of, uh, these secret, you might think of it like this, kind of a secretive society. There were these secretive societies that had various initiations and rituals that no outsider could know. The only way you could know the, the, the rituals of, uh, of this religion was to uh, be initiated into them. And then you would receive uh, secret knowledge, sometimes supernatural knowledge. So it was, uh, it was the mystery were the religions that were uh, outsiders didn't understand, only insiders did. They were these secretive societies. But when Paul uses the word, he uses it more with a Jewish understanding, and that's this, something that was hidden that now is revealed. That's what he means by mystery. Something that was hidden that is now revealed. And the best way to think about this, the best way to understand what Paul means by mystery um, in contrast to what we mean or what the Colossian pagans would have meant, uh, the best way to understand it is to think with me for a moment, if you will, about Scooby-Doo. And um, Rob last week in the second service called me out uh, for not knowing or caring about superheroes, and that, that was true. But I know my Scooby-Doo, and uh, I don't know about you, Rob, but uh, I, I just want to make my point. That's my rebuttal. I know Scooby-Doo. So, um, but, and the thing about Scooby-Doo is I watched the original Saturday morning, not some kind of goofy movie or some kind of, you know, modern-day uh, or postmodern Scooby-Doo. I knew the original Scooby-Doo on Saturday morning cartoons. And so here's how mystery works there. So the, the four kids, uh, you know, they're part of uh, Mystery Incorporated. And so uh, Fred and Shaggy and Velma and Daphne, they ride in the mystery machine, which is their van, and they go off to solve mysteries. And what they do is they look for clues. They, somebody gets lost or in danger in the process, and they have to rescue them. And, uh, but, but they're looking for clues to try to solve some mystery that they've been drawn into, and that is the modern understanding of mystery like we all hold. That is the mystery machine uh, the four teens on Scooby-Doo looking for clues. That's what we mean by mystery. But there's always a villain in the movie, and fr- in, the, in the cartoon, and frequently the villain is supernatural. So think about the ghosts in Scooby-Doo. So there's a ghost in a haunted house, and it's appearing. And if you're on the outside, you don't understand the ghost. You don't understand the monster. You don't understand the apparition. Whatever it is that's, a, that's appearing, it's a supernatural being, or so you think at first. It's a supernatural being that only someone behind the curtain really understands, but the, the, the teenagers don't, trying to figure out what is going on. So that is the pagan notion of mystery in Colossians. It is that supernatural being that for 80% of the cartoon, you don't know what's going on. You don't know uh, about this supernatural being. What Paul says when he says mystery is the climax of every show. It's that moment when the ghost is tackled. Can you tackle a ghost? Oh, yes, you can. If they're not a real one, you tackle the ghost, and the ghost then is unmasked or de-sheeted, as the case may be, the sheet removed, and then in unison, all at once, the teen sleuths respond together, Mr. Sanders, the gardener, the gardener, they all respond, utterly shocked that it was Mr. Sanders. And then Fred, the only ascot-wearing teen I've ever seen, then Fred explains all the clues along the way that pointed that now we all see, oh, it wasn't Mr. He's pretending to be Mr. Sanders. He's really the long-lost brother of the woman who has inherited the haunted mansion, on and on and on and on. And then he, of course, always says, and we caught you, you he was trying to to win the family inheritance, and he says, and it would have worked if it hadn't been for these meddling teens every time. At that moment, what is going on when the, when the, mask, or the mask or the sheet comes off and we see Mr. Sanders, there is an unveiling, and what was hidden is revealed. 
That is the best picture possible of what this Greek word means when he uses mystery. What was hidden is now revealed. What was a secret is no longer a secret. That's what he's talking about, this revealing, this, this unveiling, this, this secret which is now known by all. And Paul is saying that the revealing is God's plan, which has always been to rescue sinners and to restore all things. And then sometimes what happens in the New Testament is they go back and like Mr. Sanders, the gardener, they go back and show you the clues all along. Oh, it really wasn't a ghost. Oh, it really wasn't that. You thought it was this, it was that. Paul does the same thing, goes and looks at the Old Testament and says, this is how all things pointed to Christ. The clues were there all along, but now we see that it is Jesus, the one who has come to save God's people, to save anyone who would believe in him. Mystery is everything to Paul. He uses this term all the time. And I tell you that story just so whenever you read it, you'll have a mental image of what it means. He uses the story all the time. As a matter of fact, he tells the Corinthians, just think of us as stewards of the mystery. What he's saying is, when you think of me, think of me as this. I'm just carrying around the secret which is no longer a secret, and I'm sharing that news with other people. Just think of me as a manager of the revelation. Just think of me as someone responsible to carry the news that was unknown but is now known. And when Paul finds out the mystery, in Acts 9, when Jesus appears to him, and tells him who he is. In Acts 9, when Paul finds out the mystery that, whoa, the, the person I've been persecuting, the Christians, is actually the people of Jesus, the people of God himself, it changes everything about his life. When he gets the mystery, he gets a new king. He finds out, oh, Jesus is the king we've longed for, and he brought a kingdom that I've been pursuing and thought I was on the path towards. He gets a new king. When, when he gets the mystery, he gets a new calling. He moves from being persecutor of, church, of the church to carrier of the message, to one who is telling the, the, the open story which was now revealed. And he also gets a new purpose for his life. He says, oh, this, Jesus is Lord. He's the one I was created for. He gets an entirely new purpose which is a whole lot greater than any Scooby-Doo episode. Here, his life is completely turned around with a new calling and a new purpose, or we could say a new cause. And the reality is that when we get the mystery, or when the mystery really gets you, and you see what this passage is talking about, the mystery that Jesus is the one, when you get that, you too get a new king and become part of a new kingdom. You too get a new calling. All of life is to change. The way you view everything you do changes when you meet Jesus. And you get a new cause too. It, it's a cause very similar. Somewhat, there's differences between us and Paul. But generally speaking, we get the same cause that he does. And I want to look at those three things today. Normally I just walk verse by verse and sometimes word by word through a passage, but I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to take these themes because the words are mentioned at various times in the passage and sort of pull them together. I'm going to look at the one passage, but pull, uh, pull the verses together under three headings. Uh, when you get the mystery, you, first of all, you get a new king. So let's look at the new king. In, uh, in verse two, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. I want you to know the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's the mystery, is that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ is the word in Greek, the word in Hebrew is that we get, we, we translate as Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are the same terms. They mean the same thing. They both mean the anointed one, one anointed. And so Jesus is the anointed one who comes as the Messiah to rescue 
the people of God. He comes to rescue, ultimately, in the first place, Israel. Israel expected a Messiah would come and throw off the Roman rule. At the time of Jesus, the Israel was under Roman rulership. They were, they were uh, something of an oppression. They had freedoms, but there was some kind of an oppression over them. And they all expected that God would come and would free them, that, would they, that God would come and with military might restore Israel to the nation it once was in power. But Jesus doesn't come that way at all. He's not that kind of a king. He doesn't come with military might. He doesn't come with violence at all. He comes humbly. He comes as a servant. He comes as a friend of sinners. He comes as one who pursues the marginalized, the outsider. He comes as one who, who, uh, who rebukes, who critiques the status quo, religious leaders of the day. Jesus didn't come as a triumphant king that they expected. He came as a suffering servant. Now, the clues were there all along. Isaiah 53, he says he was the suffering servant, but nobody saw it. And now Paul is saying that there is this unmasking, this revealing, the secret is no longer a secret. Jesus is the king. He ultimately comes as a suffering servant. He's rejected. He's crucified. And it certainly would have appeared that he was a failed Messiah because he didn't fulfill the people's hopes. A failed Messiah. But, but what we find out, the mystery is that this was God's plan all along. This is what God was doing, that he was going to send his son to die, who three days later would be raised to life. This was a different kind of king. This was a different kind of kingdom than they anticipated. He's a savior king who brought a different type of salvation, not a political hero bringing political power. And whenever the church uh, hitches themselves to any political ambition and hope, it's always a miss. It's always a miss because Jesus didn't come bringing that. Jesus came as the suffering servant who ultimately brought spiritual freedom to anyone who would believe. Not political freedom in their case, but he brought spiritual freedom to anyone who would believe. He brought spiritual life to dead people. He brought spiritual sight to blind people. He came revealing that the kingdom has arrived in Jesus, and yet it has arrived, but it's not arrived in all its fullness. We won't have the fullness of the kingdom until Jesus returns and establishes a new heaven and a new earth, and all suffering and all sin, and everything bad will become made, will be made good, will be restored as God intends. But this is not the story that the people of Israel were expecting. They weren't expecting this at the time. And when the secret got out, many of them were opposed. Now, some believed, but others were op opposed to Jesus as the king. Why? Well, there's many reasons, but here is a primary reason, and it's the reason in the text we're going to see right here. A primary reason that many of the Jews at the time would have opposed the message of Jesus being the king, would have opposed what Paul says is the mystery revealed, is this, because Jesus brought a radically inclusive kingdom. He brought a radically inclusive kingdom that was open to anyone who would believe, who would turn from sin and believe in him as Savior. Anyone who would come to him. Jesus said, whoever comes, no categories, whoever comes, I will never cast them away. It's in, other words, in other words, Jesus is saying, anybody who comes believing in me, who comes to me, I will never reject them including Gentiles. And that's the, what Paul is talking about in this passage because he's saying now the Gentiles are included. They are welcomed. Matter of fact, they're at the center of all that God is doing. They were on the outskirts to God's covenant and promises, but now they have been included in the new covenant. Look at verse 26. It says, the mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. God's doing something among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's saying, here's the great mystery is that Christ is in Gentiles, believing Gentiles, God is in them. There's two types of people from the New Testament point of view. There were Jews and Gentiles. Obviously, we could divide people in other ways, but there are Jews and Gentiles. 
So if you're not a Jew from a Jewish background, then you are like probably most everyone in the room, a Gentile. And so the good news is that we are welcomed in. And that was the hidden news. That God is not only dwelling with Gentiles, he's living in them. God Almighty is in people. By his spirit, he is indwelling. This is something totally new. Acts 2, he pours out his spirit and he begins to indwell us. The spirit of God Almighty lives in the believer, including the Gentile. So what God is telling us here is it's no longer a secret. God welcomes everyone who will believe in Jesus. Everyone is welcome to come to Jesus. Which raises a great question for us today. He's inviting all to come. Have you received this king yourself? Jesus the king came and gave his life and was resurrected to reconcile you to God. He came to receive you with open arms. Now, have you received him? That's the question. He has done his work and he invites you to come. Have you received him? It's no longer a secret. Paul's saying the mystery is out. This is for the Gentiles. Christ in you, you can have God in your life. Jesus became a man, died for us. And this is the glorious news of the Christian faith. He didn't say to the offender, because we've all offended God by our sins. We're all under his judgment by nature. He doesn't say to the offender, you clean yourself up and then you can come to me. He doesn't say, Gentile, you hop through all these hoops And make yourself right, and then I will welcome you. He says, offender, I will come to you, and I will pay for your offense. That's what Jesus does. That's grace. I will welcome you. He says that to people who aren't even looking for him. They're not even looking for him. You're saying, well, the mystery is revealed. It's glorious. You say, well, I didn't even know there was a mystery. Yeah, most, most of the people didn't. But he says he has come and 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 the secret is out and he is welcoming us because of what he has done for us. There's an unspeakable love that you can know him, that you can turn and can believe in him. And Paul says now he gives himself to teaching everyone and warning everyone. I mean, there is kind of a warning in that message. It's an open invitation, but there's a warning. Believe. Don't treat that like an invitation that's just, hey, I don't know, you want to What do you want to do? I don't know. I don't know. You want to go grab a burger? It's not an invitation like, do you want to go grab a burger? It's an invitation like, do you want your entire life changed? Do you want eternal life with Christ? Do you want to find a new king and a new calling and a new cause to live for? Do you you want, though life will never fully make sense prior to his return, do you want the pieces to start coming together for you? Or do you want to continue to walk in darkness and confusion? Do you want a clean conscience? Do you want Christ in you? The only way for Christ to come in you is for you to turn from sin, to bow your knee, figuratively speaking, and invite him, trust him, believe in him, open yourself to him. I urge you to do that today. And if you are a believer, if you are a believer, then we want to ask God to make the news amazing to me because we can grow so familiar with the king, man, like the revelation, the mystery, the secret's out. The first people that that heard it, like if you were a Jew and you'd been expecting the Messiah and you hear Jesus is that and they connect all the dots for you, the unmasking from the cartoon, so to speak, you'd be like, whoa. Now you may hate him or you may love him, but you wouldn't go, I don't know. You'd be amazed by that. And if you believed, you'd really be amazed by that. There are some secrets that once we hear the secret, once we get the, once the, the reveal takes place, we're like, oh man, it's no big deal. But not this revelation. This is increasingly amazing. I don't know if you saw, but I recently had an experience where I was so excited to find out a secret. And then when I found it out, I was so let down. It, it came last month when uh, there was a lawsuit against David Copperfield. Did you track this? There's a lawsuit because he did a trick. It's his famous trick that he does at the end of every one of his shows. And uh, I think he's done it a thousand times. I, I think that was what I read. Don't quote me on that. But uh, anyway, he, uh, someone was suing him because they were an audience member who participated in the trick and were, they were injured. 
And so for the lawsuit, David Copperfield had to sit on the stand and explain the trick. Gasp, exactly. So I try to avoid clickbait on my uh, social media timeline, but man, I jumped on that. You're like, trick revealed. Okay, I'm all about that. I'm clicking over to that. I'm reading that. I read it from numbers of news sites. I watched the video multiple times. And so, yeah, so yes, that tells you a little bit. Actually, I do have a life. That doesn't sound like it, but uh, (laughs) what does a pastor do all day? Oh, he would just watch his videos about David Copperfield. So anyway, here's what happens. It's not what I do all day. So, um, so here's the trick. So the, uh, by the way, if you're going to go to Vegas in the next week and see him, just plug your ears. This is spoiler. Because I'm going to tell you, the, I'm going to reveal. Here's the great reveal. Here's the mask coming off on Scooby-Doo. This is the revela- This is the whole thing right here. So what he does is they pick 13 audience members. It's legit. They pick the audience members. They bring them up on stage. 13 people sit in chairs on a platform. They sit, it's a little above the ground or so it appears. So anyway, they, they sit there and then a curtain comes down. And I'm like watching this, like, yeah, the curtain's coming down. And then the curtain moves a little bit. And then the curtain comes up and all the people are gone. Ah, They're like all vanished. And these are like audience members. They're all gone. And then he says some stuff and some music plays. And he does David Copperfield stuff or whatever. And then he does that thing where he goes, whew. And he points like that. If this preaching gig didn't work out, I'm going to be a magician. magician, Because I got that. So he goes, he goes, like that, and that you go to the back of the room, the light goes, they're all standing in the back of the room. How does that happen? Well, if you think about it logically, how could it happen? If people are on the stage and then they have to the back of the room, how do you think that happened? Probably somehow they had to walk from point A to point B. That's exactly what happens. The sheet comes down, and there's people who work for David Copperfield behind the sheet that say, come down here, and they go under the stage, and they walk through, this is the problem, dark hallways with workers and flashlights saying, hurry, hurry, come, come, come. Well, some dude trips and and (laughs) dislocates his shoulder. And so then he's, come on, come on, and they go through these tunnels under the building, come up outside the building, walk into the back of the room, and then he goes, boom, and they're all standing up. That's the whole trick. You walk through a hallway that's dark with sawdust, allegedly, and, and now we got a guy who's hurt and suing for some crazy amount of money because he was, he was injured in the David Cup. So I saw that and go, oh, if that trick ever comes on, if I ever saw that again, I would, like, walk out. I mean, if I was at the show in Vegas, so I, oh, they're just walking under a hallway. There's nothing amazing about this. It's what a letdown. The secret's out, and now I'm let down. We could be that way with this secret. Oh, yeah, Jesus died. Oh, yeah, I know how. He, yeah, I know that one. I already know about that one. Forgave my sins. Yeah, he rose up from the grave. Forgave my sins. Yeah, I know that secret. I learned that secret at VBS. I learned that secret when I was a kid. I've known that secret. It was never a mystery to me. I've known that secret my whole life. I grew up in church. I've known that secret my whole life. And it's just not, wow, this is amazing. That's the story. He's the one we've been anticipating. He's the one that's come to make all things new. He's the hero of the story. He's the one that the plot's gone on for centuries, and we've wondered, where are you, God? And he's the one, and we rejected him? And now he's giving us a second chance. The secret is out, all the people that rejected him there. The secret is out, and now we can know him and be reconciled to him, and he can dwell in us. This king who comes to give us spiritual life, that is amazing. See, whenever we hear the revelation, whenever we hear the secret which is not a secret, whenever we hear the unveiling, Jesus is the one. God wants our hearts to stir with greater and greater awe. I lost all awe at that trick. Now, other tricks he does are amazing. But that one, I lost all awe when I said it's people walking in a hallway. That's the trick. Ah, but this one, every time we hear it, Isn't he wonderful? It's increasingly amazing that we've been invited into relationship with Almighty God, a new king. He also got a new calling, a new purpose. Look at verse 25. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Okay, that's he's saying a minister is a servant. He says, I became a servant. Uh, and I was given a stewardship. That means I was given a responsibility. I was delegated a task that I'm accountable for. So he's saying, I became a servant. I was given a task from God that was given to me for you. I was given this by God for you to make the word fully known, the mystery hidden for ages. So there's been a mystery hidden for ages. My responsibility for God is to 
carry that story, carry that secret, share that secret, which is no longer a secret. That is his new calling in life. He's to take the good news about Jesus and to communicate that to other people, to the Gentiles. What an enormous privilege and responsibility that is. And none of us are apostles to the Gentiles in the room, but we have the same calling. We have the same calling. God gives us a purpose now too. We've, been, we've come to know the creator of the universe. If you're a believer in Jesus, come to know the creator of the universe. Come to know the God who, uh, even in our weakness, even in the challenges we face in life, who has come to work in us and through us, to dwell in us, to never leave us or forsake us, to never give up on us, to help us follow him and to give us a purpose now to share that good news with others that people can know Christ. We're given that same privilege, that same responsibility that same joy. You're given a, you're a minister too, a servant. That means servant. You're a servant too. And you have a a gifted responsibility, a delegated task too, that whenever you do in your family, in your neighborhood, in your sports league, in your recreation, in your job, outside your home, your work, life, whatever it is you're doing at your church, uh, whatever, you're given the responsibility to, by God's grace, with his help, and boy, don't we need it, God's grace to help us, you get to live for, for God, to live to point to him, to be a light in the darkness so that people may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, that, so that we might provide a, a life that at times would be compelling, that would cause someone to ask a question. That's the goal, by his grace, that we live in such a way that somebody would say, how do you explain that? And we'd be able to say God is at work, and we'd be able to share the good news with others. And even when we mess up, able to say, look, I messed up, Even humbling ourselves and acknowledging our faults recognizes that we need forgiveness. So even in our weakness, and particularly in our weakness, we can communicate the good news. But Paul's new calling is not just to tell the good news. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Okay, what's he saying here? I'm filling up Christ's afflictions that are lacking. What is he saying? Well, my short answer is I'm not sure, but I got to say something, right? Uh, So uh, my more detailed answer would be this. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that his suffering is helping to complete the atonement that you couldn't get in Jesus. He's not saying Jesus died, that'll get you about 80% of the way. The last 20%, that's going to be me suffering for you in a jail. That's not what he's saying. Jesus' work pays for all your sins. You can't atone for your sins. Paul sure can't atone for your sins. Only Jesus can atone for your sins. And he's covered it all. Look at verse 20. It says, that was from last week, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he says, look, Jesus' death on the cross, that, that made peace with God. So he's not saying that his afflictions, that he in his flesh is filling up what is a lacking in Christ's atonement or redemption. Um, so there's lots of views on this, but that's what everybody agrees with. Every Orthodox person believes that no, Paul is not suffering for your sins. Everybody also agrees on this point. And then where they all disagree, I can recommend some commentaries if you want to go read all that. But here's where they uh, all agree as well, is that Jesus is tied to his church in our sufferings. That there is an intimate connection between Jesus and his people. That in our sufferings, we are closely intertwined for God, with God. And that there is some sense in which he is still afflicted when his people are afflicted. He is the head and we are the body. And the body is afflicted. And while Paul may not be uh, sort of, you know, uh, participating in Christ's redemption, while he's not replacing Christ's afflictions like let me suffer for you, he is extending Christ's afflictions. There's a sense in which it is finished and Jesus' afflictions are over. And one day we will live in an affliction-free eternity. No suffering, no sin, forever. But between now and the time Jesus returns, it is ordained that his people suffer in a fallen world, that we suffer. And in that, the body is in some way connected with Christ, the head, in our suffering and in his suffering. We await the day when we are free from suffering, but we're not now. 
Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. Meaning, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's what Jesus says. Suffering is part of our calling. And here's what's really good news about that. There's a lot of things that are good news about that, and I'm going to be very compassionate to anybody who's in the midst of significant suffering today. But the reason there's good news is that it will come to an end for the believer in Jesus. All suffering will be done away with. Secondly, it means that Jesus is with us in our suffering. He is connected to us. He is in us, with us, for us, in our suffering. Number three, it means that our suffering has purpose. Paul actually is rejoicing. That's what he said. Shocking. I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul is in a jail. Chapter four said he's in chains. Paul's chained in a jail for doing the right thing, talking about Jesus. And he is saying, I'm rejoicing that this is happening. In one of his letters, I think it's Philippians, he says, because this is happening, because I'm suffering, look what God is doing. And he was talking about how some people met Christ through him. He told the Roman guard about Jesus. So he's saying, even in my difficulty, God's at work. Here's what that means, that suffering can have purpose. One of the big problems with what's called the prosperity gospel, there's a lot of problems with it. Starting with, it teaches that when you meet Jesus, in essence, you have a right for all your problems to go away in this life. You can always be healed with enough faith. You can always have enough money with enough faith. Uh, you can always have your relationships go well. Whatever it is, you can have everything. Basically, you can have heaven on earth. I believe the prosperity gospel. I just don't believe the timing. Everything the prosperity gospel teaches will happen when Christ returns. And some of it happens now. God does heal. God does miraculously heal. God does provide financially miraculously. God does miraculous things in relationships. So God is at work for sure. But the promise that we get all that now, it it, it makes people then feel guilty when they're sick, guilty when somebody dies, guilty when they lose their job or need money because they didn't have enough faith, or maybe there's a hidden sin in their life. If I could just get this sin, if I could just get rid of the sin of bitterness, then I would have a job and I'd be healed. If I could just get rid of this sin. Hey, look, you're not going to get rid of all your sins until Jesus returns. If if your healing and your job and everything else is determined by, uh, by your heart and not by grace, you are sunk, first of all. You're in deep trouble. Or if it's not my fault, then there's some mystery. It's a sin I committed. It's four generations ago. There was a curse put over me and it's come, or in my family and it's come down. And so I'm trying to serve Jesus. I've repented. I believe the word. But until this mysterious curse is found out and broken, that's pagan mystery religion. That's what's going on in Colossae. That is not biblical Christianity. Okay? So the, the problem with the prosperity gospel is it puts so much pressure on people to perform and to have faith and removes grace out of the equation. And it means this, if Paul's rejoicing in his sufferings, if I have to get rid of all my sufferings in Jesus' name by claiming it, naming it, and quoting this verse, and now I'm free, if that's what I have to do, then there's no purpose in my suffering. Paul, I'm going to be careful here, but Paul's not even avoiding his suffering here. Now, I think we should pray for every sick person and seek to find a job and seek to get financially whole and seek to reconcile relationships and do whatever we can to, to fix suffering and, and pray. But here in his situation, he says, I'm rejoicing in this for your sake. There's some benefit coming to you in this. And the prosperity gospel would mean there is no benefit in suffering. It's just something to be avoided. It's just a test of faith for you to get free. Paul would say he's not getting free immediately. He will get free. But he's not getting free immediately. Well, actually, he's going to die, but he'll get free when he dies. Here's how his suffering ends up. He gets killed. And he will meet Jesus and be free. But you see, he's saying there's a purpose in this. We don't know what the purpose is. I don't know what the purpose of my suffering is. I dare not tell you what the purpose of your suffering is. How would I know? I'm not God. And so when we are putting guilt on people that don't have enough faith or when we're saying about people suffering, you know, something like, hey, uh, I know what God's doing, that's dangerous ground. You don't know what God's doing in someone's life. Sometimes we know. Sometimes God tells us or it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. But regardless, we do know it's purposeful. We do know God is with us. We do know our afflictions are tied to his afflictions. We do know, at least in this case, that his afflictions are being used somehow to benefit someone else. 
I don't know what that is. He's writing a letter, and he said, I'm praying like crazy for you guys. So we know a couple things that are happening for their benefit. Maybe he didn't write this letter. Maybe he didn't pray like crazy if he's not stuck in a room chained to a wall. I don't know. But it's benefiting them. So we're closely intertwined with Jesus, that he, he identifies with us in our afflictions. He frequently frees us from our afflictions. Frequently people are healed. Frequently people get a job. Frequently they have their financial needs met. Frequently. Frequently the relationship's repaired. Frequently there's an answer for the confusion. But not always. Not always. But Paul's saying, hey, I've got a new calling. My calling is to carry the good news. And my calling is to suffer. He had a thorn in the flesh. Three times he prayed to be removed. It was not removed. We don't know what it is. He was being persecuted. Was it a physical thing? We don't know. But Paul lived. He said, I came to the Corinthians. I came to you in weakness. He lived in weakness. But in his weakness, God was strong. There was a purpose to his weakness. It was a platform of the power of God. So Paul says, I got a new calling. Once I met Jesus, I had joy. I had eternal life. I had freedom. I had a message. And I had suffering. Lastly, he gets a new cause. When you get the mystery, you'll get a new cause, a new reason for living. Listen, many people, and maybe you feel this way, I get it if you do, it's very common, uh, have no idea what per- their purpose in life is. We are so busy in our culture. We're just running from thing to thing, running from appointment, working late, doing this thing, doing that thing, shuttling the kids all over the place, and just at the end of the day, just crash, falling over in bed, wiped out fatigued, many of us. And no one ever stops to pause and say, like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? Why is God letting my lungs expand and contract one more time? What am I here for? And we don't know. We don't, maybe we thought about it once in a philosophy class at college or something. But we, when I had to write a paper on the reason for my existence or something. But what, what is, we don't think about that. Some of us think, well, I'm here for success. <laughs> and, and, and maybe there's even a noble cause attached to it. I'm here to succeed, which could be a good thing. I'm here to succeed so that I can help others succeed. <laughs> I'm in a position to help others. Fantastic. Um, So that can feel like that is a cause, but really, is that ultimately all there is? I'm just here to do well? Is that all? How about in the areas you're not doing well? What's the purpose of those? Or some people would say, hey, uh, you know, my my cause is love. I'm looking for love. The purpose of my life is to love, to be loved, to be in a relationship of love, to have a family of love. Family, that's my purpose. Love is great. Family is great. There's something beyond love and family. Sometimes we don't all act very lovingly. Sometimes family dies. I mean, we don't, so so that's not something that we can bank on eternally, though it's certainly valuable. Some people, money. my, My goal in life is to make money so that then I can stop working and just not have to worry about money. Okay, so then what are you gonna do at that point, right? Or, Influence, I want to influence others, whatever it is. But when we get the mystery, we find out why we were really created. We meet the one behind it all, the one who created everything, and we see what he is doing on the earth, and we're connected to Christ, and we, find, we begin to find our purpose. Paul found his real cause for life once he met Jesus. He found out what he was designed for. In his commentary in this passage, N.T. Wright says something very helpful about this. He says, we can't stress often enough that Paul didn't see the human plight like so many do today, that people need to have some kind of spiritual experience and that Jesus the Messiah could supply it if they wanted. Now, God does give us spiritual experience, but many people just want Jesus to get an experience. He gives them, but, but many of us, that's all we want from him. And he's saying, it was, here was Paul's point of view, the mystery revealed, it was that King Jesus himself was the center of the universe, that Jesus was the key to life of the universe, the whole universe, the image of the invisible God, the clue to genuinely human existence. Christianity says, the old slogan is, Christianity is Christ. Put him at the middle of your picture of the world. 
and the world will stop spinning in incomprehensible circles and begin to make sense. Find him and you've got the treasure. It may take you a while to get it all out of the treasure chest and inspect it, but when you do, you'll find, so Paul is saying in this passage, that all the wisdom and knowledge that ever there was finds its meaning in him. He is quite simply what it's all about. That is his new cause. His new king is his new cause. So for us, look at how Paul relates to that new cause. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim. I've met him. This is now the goal of my life. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is saying, I'm struggling. It's like hard work. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. It's like, a, it's like, I'm sorry, toiling is hard work. I toil, it's hard work. I struggle, it's like wrestling. It's a picture of human wrestling. I'm wrestling with all this, everything in me, but it's actually Christ in me. He says, with all Christ's energy, he powerfully works within me. He is, why is that? Because he wants everyone to be mature in Christ. He wants everyone to take their next step, to move forward, to grow, to develop, to know Jesus more and more, to change by his grace, by his power, to be a mature person. That's what he is saying. And he's saying this is so important that he struggles with, it's like a wrestling match. It's like toiling work. It means everything to him that someone else would move forward in Christ. He doesn't want the church to stall out. Someone said, being a Christian is like riding a bicycle. Unless you go forward, you fall off. And going forward as a Christian means once more, and going, I'm sorry, and going forward as a Christian means once more, nothing more or less than going forward in Christ the King. So he's saying he wants them to move forward. He doesn't doesn't want them to just be on the bike trying to balance, which won't last without some kind of movement. He wants them, his word is not a bike going forward. His word is mature, but you get the picture. He wants them to mature. Look at verse, chapter 2, 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face. I'm struggling for all you people that have never met me, that your hearts would be encouraged, you'd be knit together in love, and that you would have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I've never even met you folks, he's saying. But I'm wrestling, I'm struggling, I'm sweating, I'm getting worn out with Jesus' energy which is working through me to see you move forward to guard, so that you won't be deluded. He says that in verse 4, he doesn't want them to be deluded with plausible arguments. They're vulnerable. I don't know you, but you're vulnerable. You're new Christians. I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to make it in Jesus. So I'm teaching. I'm instructing. I'm warning. I'm helping everyone take a forward step however I can. Now, you don't have Paul's calling, and I don't have Paul's calling, but this is a convicting section of Scripture. And here's why. Because If Paul struggles at this level for vulnerable believers, he's never even met. Do I struggle at all for the growth and the maturity and the forward movement and the protection and the safety of believers that I know well? He doesn't even know these people, and he's a spiritually a sweaty mess as the Spirit of God works through him. And the question is, do I, in the people I know, do I long to see them mature? Do I long to see them? Am I gripped by the cause? When you get the mystery, you get a new cause. Am I gripped by the cause that he's gripped about? Because we're surrounded by people. Family, friends, your community group, a heart to see others mature, a heart to see myself mature, but a heart to see other people encouraged, not discouraged, knit together, not isolated. This is his language, knit together, knowing the glory of this mystery. It's not just that they know him. It's not just I'm carrying the news so they'll be born. 
as new Christians, it's that they will grow. Here's, a, here's my one illustration for moms today. Uh, when you gave birth and had a child, it wasn't like at that moment, it's, I'm sure, I, I have never done it, but I've observed it with my wife. I'm sure at that moment, that was the biggest goal of your life is to I don't know how to say, complete the delivery. How about that? That's the biggest goal of your life at the moment, complete the delivery. But once you held the baby, it was like, okay, I'm done. You, you were like, okay, no, I care about the development of that child. The goal wasn't just to give birth. The goal was to ultimately see someday, by God's grace, a flourishing adult. And that's what he's saying. It's not enough just to tell the secret. It's, it's, the secret's out. Jesus is alive and he will change your life and you can know him. No, it's not just that. It's to present everyone mature. That's his goal. So here's the question I have to ask myself. How can I help someone else take their next step? Who in your life, how could you help someone take their next step in Christ? What would that look like? How could you help someone move forward? Maybe you're going to hold the bike for them. Maybe you're going to put on some training wheels for them. Maybe you're going to run along with them while they learn how to ride. I don't know, but what, could, what is God calling you to do? Whom am I to help? What spiritual good can I do towards another person to help them? What would it be like for an entire church if everybody took that interest in another person? What if everybody said, I'm wrestling, and wrestling can take a lot of forms. It could be wrestling in prayer. It could be wrestling with your finances to give some finance, finances to bless, to help somebody. It could be wrestling with your time. It could be a listening ear. Uh, it could be um, studying with someone. It could be sending them some materials or get, giving them some materials. It could be practically serving them. It could be having a conversation to encourage them or to raise a concern with them, to teach them, to point them to Christ, to just listen and be a friend, to be present and not say anything. It could be any number of things. But what's the next thing God is calling you to do with one person? Just pick one person. He wants, I'm struggling that you would be mature, he says, that you would take the next step. If an entire church adopted that mindset, stopped long enough to say, I've been reconciled to God, I have a new king. I've been given a new calling to carry the gospel, to live out the truth of the gospel, to share that news, and to suffer for him. Well, I have that calling. And I have a new cause. It is to not only live for his glory myself, but to help others, do spiritual good to others so that they may take a step towards Jesus in their walk with him as well. A new king, a new calling, a new cause. What is your next step? Let's pray. And as we do, I'm going to be quiet for a moment and pause and just ask you to reflect on what we talked about this morning in the passage and, and see what the Lord would want you to do as a step before we run out of here and celebrate moms or whatever you're doing today. Uh, let's pause for just a second. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.